This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to 3RRR and it's radiotherapy time. And I'm Sigmund McZiff and with me today we have the ever young and elegant Anabolics. The debonair dark knight of psychiatry, SK, and the titan of the turntable, Kent. And uh, what a show we have for you today. If all things work well, I think it's going to be a beauty. And uh, that's got nothing to do with the fact that Tallman is not here. So um, what we're planning to do is we're going to talk with John Safran if uh, the technology works. And John's going to talk about his participation in a reclaim, well, participation, his witnessing of a reclaim Australia rally recently in an article that he wrote about that, a very impressive article, I must say. We're also, we've got some very interesting uh, topics to cover as well, and uh, Anabolics is going to talk about uh, Medibank Private's recent decision not to pay hospital costs when a sentinel event occurs within a hospital. So, for example, if uh, there's a suicide or a maternal death in labor, the costs are going to be shifted from the insurer to the hospital, uh, and I expect probably to the patient. So this is a very major change and something which uh, warrants discussion. And SK is going to be talking about uh, a brilliant film from uh, from last year, The Imitation Game, uh, the mathematical genius who cracked the code and uh, which uh, contributed very much to the Allies winning the Second World War and his own personal struggles. So we'll talk about that. So there's all of those things and there's so much more. We're going to also uh, have uh, a couple of things to talk about in catch-up. And uh, uh, so get your coffees and your, your toast and uh, join us as we go on this merry ride. We've got a show and uh, a bit of a surprise. I think uh, we're going to be able to upskill the technology, we're perhaps going to be able to transport John Safran into the studio this morning, which is quite impressive. Now, Anabolic's looking gorgeous as usual. Thank uh, you so much. Same to you. Good morning. Yeah. How's your week been? It's It's been uh, great. Thank you. Had some lovely dinners with friends and a bit of time away from the city, and it's all been great. Thank you very much. And looking forward to coming back here this morning. I, I, I hear uh, Tallman's getting some serious R&R time, which is, uh, we send our love to him. I'm sure he's listening wherever he is, so... Take care, mate. I think he'll be listening, and he'll be taking notes about how best to run the show on his return. I must say I'm rather glad that he's not out uh, surfing at the moment. I'm a little bit um, sharkified at the moment with all the awful things that have happened. So I, he, he's a big big surfer, and I must say that's uh, given me pause for concern this week. Yes, I think he's gone scallop fishing instead. Oh, it's very scary, very scary. So anyway, good, good on you, mate. See you soon. And uh, SK, SK, now you've been in the news yourself, young man, haven't you? Well, we've had a bit of media exposure during the week uh, about one of the Alzheimer's disease clinical trials that we've been running, yes. So uh, sort of my cover has been blown uh, as far as radiotherapy goes, you could argue. But uh, it was the Alzheimer's Association International Conference this week in Washington. And had events worked out differently, I would have been over there presenting a poster about some very early uh, results that we got in one of our Alzheimer's disease clinical trials. Uh, They just looked at uh, data from the first 12 patients that we've had through the study, looking at EEG changes or brainwave changes 
that have been induced in response to receiving a particular experimental drug that's being investigated not only to potentially modify the course of Alzheimer's disease but also to act as a cognitive enhancer. So in other words, patients not only deteriorate less whilst they're taking this drug in theory but they actually feel and perform better whilst they're receiving the drug as well. And that differentiates it from a lot of the other Alzheimer's drugs in development which really just aim to slow down the course of people's deterioration so people never actually feel better. They just perhaps get some comfort from the fact that knowing that they're deteriorating at a slower rate than if they weren't receiving the drug. Okay, a couple of questions. Um, there was a headline, Miracle Drug. Oh, of course. It was, it was the Herald Sun, so of course it was a miracle headline. I'm surprised they didn't work uh, a, a tot story in there as well, like the Herald Sun uh, liked to do. Is it a miracle drug? Look, it's not a miracle. Uh, you know, there, there, there are no miracles in this field, and I think any drug that claims that it's going to cure Alzheimer's is, is holding out false hope. Uh, we know that pathology in Alzheimer's deposits in brains up to 10, 15 years before people develop symptoms, so the implication from that is by the time you develop very early cognitive changes of Alzheimer's disease, you've really got quite advanced disease in your brain. So I think the most the drug can hope for is to provide some cognitive benefit to treat the symptoms and perhaps to slow down the decline or at best perhaps arrest progression of the disease. So I think uh, the way this field's going is that future drugs will be targeted to targeted towards people who we know have the pathology in their brains but who aren't yet sick and that's the hope for preventing Alzheimer's I think rather than curing it. So question two is, is there some sort of safe and reliable way where we can, in fact, detect those who have got the, the possibility, the likelihood of developing Alzheimer's before they become that before it becomes clinically apparent? Look, in fact, we can. We have the technology nowadays with PET scanners. Uh, PET scanners are nuclear medicine scans, and they've got uh, little radioactive tags that can bind to the Alzheimer's pathology in the brain. So theoretically, McZiff, um, you know, if we put you under a PET scanner now and gave you uh, an injection of this radioactive material, we could light up your brain if you have the pathology present, even though you currently don't have symptoms and are feeling completely well or as completely well as you get to feel, uh, then knowing that you have the pathology, we could potentially treat you with one of these medications that removes the pathology and gets rid of it so that you never actually develop symptoms in later life. And there is some local work going, along, going on along those lines. There's a very large-scale uh, Melbourne-based study called the ABLE study, the Alzheimer's Imaging Biomarkers and Lifestyle Study, which was got as part of its trial participants healthy controls, you know, people who are cognitively well but who are getting older and they're scanning all of these participants as part of the study and they're finding that a proportion of healthy controls do in fact have Alzheimer's pathology and what will be interesting in that study going forward is to seeing how many of them convert to becoming Alzheimer's disease sufferers and in what period of time. Problem with PET scanning technology is a PET scan is very expensive, like it's about 1500 bucks, and there's maybe three or four of these scanners in Victoria so it's uh, not applicable for a large scale population screening approach until they can make it a lot cheaper. So let's forget about the PET scanners but just put everybody or actually put into the water a combination of a statin, aspirin, uh, hypotensive agent and uh, the new anti-Alzheimer's agent and we'll live well until we're 120. Or 150 if you're Joe Hockey, though I, I don't want Joe Hockey to live to 150. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, delighted to be joined this morning by John Safran. And uh, John, you're a friend of Triple R. You've been in Triple R before, haven't you? Yeah, I used to do the breakfast. Exactly. Back in 1892. 1892, when uh, when Tallman was uh, in the early stages <laughs> of his adult life. Uh, so now, John. I thought we'd get in, I'd get in touch with you this week. Uh, I was reading an article that you wrote about your attendance at a Reclaim Australia rally. Tell us a little bit about it. I thought the article was brilliant. And uh, just for those who haven't read it, tell us a little bit about your, your, your witnessing this rally last weekend, I think oh, it yeah. was. So, so Reclaim Australia are a group that are against what they see as the Islamification of Australia and multiculturalism in Australia. And they called a rally in the city outside Parliament House. Or I don't know if they called it there or the police told them that's where they, they can do it. So there was them and then there's, whenever there's a protest like that, usually there's an anti-protest that comes to protest the protest. So I thought, well, I'll just rock on up because it's just a, just, just, a, just a train ride down from from where I live, so I, I didn't even particularly go to write. It was just like that shows what a lunatic I am, really. Like, because I'm I'm a bit of a homebody, don't really like to leave the house for much. But it's like, ah, yeah, there's a far right rally down the street. Might pop on down, see what's happening. So I turn up, and already it's like visual overload as soon as I walked out of the train station at Parliament House, because there's just hundreds and hundreds of police in high-vis jackets and just this sort of repetition of this one image of one policeman a hundred ti- hundreds of times is just, like, it's kind of weird. It was like going to see Avatar or Mad Max Fury Road, like, just this... just And, and it was kind of a bit confusing because all these landmarks that are usually, you know, like the European Cafe and, you know, that little bookshop near the top and Pellegrini's and stuff, it, it's just... T- totally, a, a, it's all haywire, and there were there was already hundreds and hundreds, which was soon to become over, you know, I think a couple of thousand of anti-protesters, and they they were already there, and the police were so successful at dividing things up and keeping things under control that no one from either side knew where the other side was. Like that's sort of like how big it was, and how successfully the police had kind of negotiated it that because you know after hanging around with the anti-racist protesters for a while I was like you know three be a bit of fun like I, I want to see I want to see what the, the, the where the far right people are and no one knew where they were like no one could tell me where, where they actually were located then there was this uh, sort of nerdy I don't say that in a bad way but just to sort of like just describe her there was this nerdy looking girl like quite a, a young woman and she suddenly started running around in the anti-racist side, like giving these Heil Hitler salutes. And so then that became confusing because for the anti-racist, this was the first, oh, one of the baddies. Except she was like a young woman who like had thick glasses and was a bit corpulent and, you know, and very pasty and rosy red cheeks. So it's like, what do you, what do, you do when you're confronted not with a skinhead who's, do, who's, do, who's doing a zig hail all around the place? So she was sort of like sort of chased off by a few, by a few people. Anyway, I thought, oh, maybe she, like, she'll know how to get to the far right rally. So I kind of 
somewhat creepily, I guess. I kind of followed her for about 10 minutes as she zigzagged up and down streets. And then we finally got to the... Uh, all around... All, doing, doing a thing all around the city and then ending up outside that place, like where the European is or whatever. And it was already blocked off. that The police weren't allowing anyone through. But fortunately, I just joined a couple of months ago the Media Entertainment... Arts Alliance Union for for being a freelance journo, and so I was able to flash my card and get past the police lines into where the far right or the Reclaim Australia rally was. So union dues paid for themselves already, <laughs> and anyway, the Reclaim Australia was it was a Ute and it was parked outside Parliament House, and there were a couple of hundred people there. And the rally was about to start, and this blonde white woman gets up, climbs on the back of the ute where there's a speaker system, and she says, First, I'd like to thank the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people. And it's like, what? Okay, this is like some weird anti-multicultural rally where you thank the traditional owners of the land. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. So anyway, I took a snap of her and uploaded that onto my Facebook with a little sarcastic comment. Anyway, then she kind of gets down, and then the next guy who gets up is uh, a guy, and he's uh, from Cook Island, and he's a singer, and he's, he's Polynesian. And he was born in New Zealand. I'm going, well, this is kind of another weird person to be at a, this far-right anti-multicultural rally. And he starts singing Amazing Grace as the, as the song, and... People are swaying along in the crowd. And then uh, uh, da- Danny Nulia, is that his name? Uh, he's from he, he's from the Catch the Fire ministry, a, a, a Christian group, and he's also the political, political arm of that is Rise Up Australia. And then he gets up, and he's like a Sri Lankan immigrant, so it's, really, it's like this very multicultural, anti-multicultural rally. And he starts... All of them are, are really selling the case. They're saying that they're... It's not a racist rally. They're just against Islam, and they're very. And then I start putting the pieces together. That that in in this big crowd of Reclaim Australia, about half of them are from Danny Nolia's church, and he's he's an evangelical Christian, and his objection to Islam is, you know, it's 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 religiously driven as opposed to racially driven, which sort of explains why there's these non-white faces at the rally. Because, yeah, about half, half the rally was probably his people, and out of his people, probably about a quarter of them were non-white, like people from... Because uh, I asked around, people from North Africa, people from India, Polynesian people, Chinese Australians, were all in this... <laughs> all this Reclaim Australia rally that was, if you weren't in it, you would just assume was filled with white skinheads. Uh, anyway, so th- th- there was that bit of the rally. And, 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 and the thing I explained in the article is that I think a lot of like white secular or just secular Australians in general, if, if they haven't grown up like in a religious community, they don't, they don't, they don't kind of get how all-encompassing and how part of your life religion is and scripture is. So because I have sort of had that upbringing in my, in my own way, growing up in the Jewish community, I, can, I sort of understand why someone would be so enthralled by their scripture, even though I, not me personally, but my friends are out, that they'd, they'd, it'd be 
you know, Jesus Christ was the last prophet and these Muslims are here and they're, you know, they're spreading the wrong word to people and, and it's just, it's, 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 an, it's an assault to them on their senses as much as like a Muhammad ca- cartoon would be to a Muslim. That, like, that, that's what Danny Nalya and these Christians would be feeling. They're, they're just kind of like the Quran and those teachings are just so toxic and we've got to get up and, and protest it. And, and yeah, Anyway, so that's how I sort of explain the non-white faces there. Anyway, but they weren't the only people at the Reclaim Australia rally and then I walked deeper into the crowd and suddenly it was like going into a bikey club or something where th- these were all the the white Australians that you'd imagine would be at this, like, but re- re- you know, really rough, looking like bikies, and so it's quite intimidating. And then also, people have patches on them that aren't quite swastikas, but sort of like you're going, eh, oh, this is a bit uncomfortable, unsettling, or something. And anyway, as soon as I walk into that area, within as like a, a microsecond, someone screams out to me turn on the gas and I was like holy hell like he obviously recognised who I was and knew I was Jewish or whatever so anyway I say to him I go I was at a joke and then he backed away straight away he goes oh, no, no 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 like you know a nebbish Nazi or something and then <laughs> and and I wrote in the article about that exchange where I was, you know with him saying it wasn't a joke I that you know, I'd met Holocaust deniers before, but this was the first Holocaust joke denier <laughs> I'd ever come across. And then this other dude who was like an emo Nazi, he was tall and lanky and had like a Korean boy band haircut. He just was like staring and staring at me. And he starts going, you Jewish parasite, you parasite, you do not belong here. And he starts telling me I have to go to the other side of the you know, with all the lefties over the thing or whatever. And he he was just so furious at me, just, I don't know, just, I don't know, lots of people don't like my work, but generally <laughs> generally it's not, not because of, I'm Jewish or whatever. So he, and, so, and so some other Nazis had to come and kind of save me from him. So, you know, and I like to be Nazi half full about these things, so I'd, <laughs> I'd like to concentrate on the good Nazis that held back the Nazi who was about to throttle me. And then... Anyway, so so this territory, uh, compared to the reclaim, uh, but compared to the, the you know the churchy bit, this was a group called the United Patriots Front, and they're they're like a far right group, and and they they go to such big efforts to try to distance themselves from anything neo-Nazi, like they chased off this one guy with a, a swastika tattoo on his head earlier on, and but. You know, it's it's a hard sell. Like mm. no one, I, I was telling them, I was saying, listen, no one's going to make any distinction. It's like people don't think that hard about these things. And and and, and anyway, so anyways, and the, the leader of this, their group got up on the back of the Ute and he starts screaming. And he's got like a bra- he's literally got a brown shirt and also brown pants, and he's got these Popeye arms, and he's screaming and screaming, and he's really passionate. Although there's a slight sort of like a performance element where you can tell, you know, when you go to the theatre and the acting's like slightly like one degree of separation compared with like quality film or TV acting where you get lost in it or whatever. And then he came down from the ute after his big thing and he was kind of like hovering around a bit like my friends in the theatre where after they do a show or whatever, they hang at the bar afterwards sort of like fishing for positive compliments about yeah. their performance. So he was kind of doing that and... 
And then Danny Noya got back on and said he supported the United Patriots front, which was, like, weird because they... they that, they seem way more racially driven. And even though they made lip service to that, oh, listen, we're not racially driven, it's just against Islam. Like, I don't quite buy it. Like, I think they generally would have a problem with a a brown person, even if they weren't Muslim. And and, and when Danny Noya got up to support them, I was thinking to myself that maybe he's a bit of a puppet master in this, where he's... Even though he's coming from an evangelical Christian perspective, he's leveraging the fact that there's xenophobic white Australians and sort of like using them for his own grand purpose. So, so which basically, is like, like a lot of people when they look at people like Danny Nelio or the non-white people, they're uh, psycho and uh, amateur psych- psychological um, session is that all oh, these are self-hating brown people who are trying to suck up to the the white dominant culture but I, I mean I don't, I don't know this is just my guess and my from being there is like I, I, I find my argument that they're evangelical Christians lost in it and th- that's why they hate Islam I, I find that far more credible than this whole thing that they're self-hating brown people who are trying to suck up to the white establishment but I don't know so I mean, in your career, which uh, most of us have followed with a degree of fascination, uh, you've actually you've gotten very close to some of the darker sides of society, um, particularly, you know, Ku Klux Klan, Nazis. You've really been in there, and uh, and uh, I would have thought at some times, at risk of uh, your own personal safety, how much purchase do you think that these groups actually have in the mainstream society? Um, def- define your terms. Well, well. Say, for example, some of the attitudes that are some of the very racist attitudes about th- that are basic that are very much based on fear. Yeah, I, I think they go so far that even though Australian society is uh, xenophobic, and you know, lots of people are against boat people that these guys go so far that they, they almost destroy any chance they have of even getting the xenophobic Australians onto their team because uh, they... It's, it's just like that they, they... By going around, being associated with Nazis in any way just kind of kills them. Like, no-one wants to be associated with Nazis. Like, if Pauline Hanson turned up to some rally and there was a swastika flag, well, it'd be nuts. She'd walk the other way. Like, no one wants to be associated with them. And I was thinking that in some ways, the fact that a couple of overt neo-Nazis had turned up to Reclaim Australia kind of killed off their their success almost more than the fact that there were a thousand anti, anti-racist protesters on the other side because mainstream Australia... Like, it's such a slither of people who ever want to be associated with anything Nazi-like. So, so what do you say to the, the argument that the counter-demonstration oxygenates the, the very issue that the, the Nazis and, and neo-Nazis and patriots are, are pushing? It's kind of hard to know. I, th- I think there's two things. There's one that, on a very practical level, the far right could be a dangerous street gang. So... Where like they do go out and occasionally like bash up someone, so I think probably having an anti rally in some ways 
good to show them that there's lots of numbers against them. But uh, I mean, yes, it, it does. It does give them oxygen. Like that's what I can't imagine what else they're looking for than attention. And no one would be paying them. A lot less attention would be paid to them if there were, uh, if there weren't thousands of other people. But it's mm-hmm. such a balancing act, and and, and it, it does make because because the other thing is that it shows to people on the anti-racist side. Oh my God, most of us are on my side, and and so that's a positive thing. And like you do feel a bit better about Melbourne in that kind of yeah. Eth- yeah. state state ethnic pride thing when you kind of say, oh. These, these far-right people turned up and there were only a couple of hundred of them and then there were a couple of thousand of the other ones. Like, it, it does establish, what I guess, what most people in Melbourne think. John, do you think there's been a little bit of a shift in the last few years on this on that on that particular issue? Because a few years ago, we've had these we've had rallies like this before, anti you know, anti um, immigration rallies and things like that that have been pretty horrible to hear. Generally, in my recollection, the most common response has been to have peace rallies and harmony days in the federation you know federation yeah. gar- you know um, treasury gardens and things like that. I, it worried me the other day that this is the first time that I can remember that a really very well organised uh, you know black Balaclava group turned up, and it, oh, it, you mean as the anti, as, as the anti, as, as the anti racist, yeah. And, and I wonder whether that that tends to give some credence to the, uh, the 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 racist call that violence is the answer, you know. And how do you how do we combat that sort of? I, I, it's, it, I think it's a bit of a numbers game, and just because there's so many whatever twenty million people in Australia that you are going to get some anti-racist activists, especially with the internet, that now that's so much easier to kind of communicate. So it's so much easier for those very few people to sort of feed off each other and then organise, which, you know, you probably couldn't do as easily before Facebook. But um, I, th- I think it is true that for everyone outside the rally, like when, when, when I, this is the second rally I've been to like this, I went to one in Brisbane, and when you're lost in it, it's like being in an LSD trip. It's so strange and there's all these little worlds within worlds, some of which I just discussed, and it's fascinating, but I'm so aware that for anyone on the outside, none of them notice any of that nuance. And I I was saying to... In in the same way as I was saying to the far-right people, saying, listen, you can chase off those Nazis, but no-one on the outside is going to make this nuance between your group where you look like skinheads, you carry these big red flags, and and you're on reclass... No-one's going to make a distinction between you and the Nazis, but even more general than that, I think for an average person, like, watching it on the telly, the news, or driving past, they're barely making a distinction between the two sides, between mm. the racist and the anti-racist. They're saying, here are two... Because Aussies are laid back and apathetic and stuff, it's just like oh, he's two trouble, smelly trouble making groups. And oh, sorry, I, I, do, I do remember when I went to this Brisbane rally and I, it was kind of similar. I got lost in it; it was insane. And I, I remember right at the end of the day, uh, I was there was some street workers that I was, you know, people who just work in the offices in Brisbane, and I was standing next to them and these anarchists, these anti-racists were marching by with their black flags you know, against the Nazis and and the guys, the office workers just said, oh, they, they must be the Nazis because, you know, they've got balaclavas and black flags and so, so that's, that's how much it's lost on anyone outside these little ecosystems. John, you spent some time dissecting the makeup of the far-right group of protesters, the couple of hundred there. There was a 
much larger group of the anti-racists, yeah. you know, in the boring demonstration with no utes <laughs> and Jimmy Barnes music. But yeah. could you dissect the population of the uh, the anti-racists? Were they religious-based as well, or just broadly oh, the I, left? I just I just ended up once I luckily got into this little closed-off space with the far-right people, I knew it was like one of those nightclubs where once you leave, you're not going to be allowed to come back in. And so I spent the entire time with those far-right people. And so, so I, I, I only spent a little time with the other side and, you know, it seemed to be, you know, uni students and people like that. Well... John, look, so, thank you so much for coming in and uh, sharing your experiences. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's wonderful to have someone like yourself who's, who is really out there. Um, and there, there's, you've got a bravery about you which uh, challenges convention, and uh, I think you, you, inf- you shine a light on uh, some of the places where most of us don't uh, ordinarily go. And uh, um, it's terrific that you've come in here and, uh, and shared that with us today. Thank you. Very nice. And uh, we're just going to take a brief break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about uh, Medibank Private. Three triple R. Hello, I'm Christos Cholkis, and you're listening to 3RRR, which was a radio station that changed my life, and I'll change yours. Please subscribe. And welcome back to Radiotherapy. It's 10.32 on Sunday morning, and uh, we've... Uh, oh, it's lovely to have John here, yeah, and uh, now we're going to something perhaps uh, a little bit more medical, perhaps, and uh, mm. Medibank Private Anabolics. Tell us what happened. Well, there's an interesting uh, situation evolving that we're, uh, is worth watching over the next few weeks, I think, and it, um, it is around uh, what the big health insurers are going to pay for when it comes to your hospital visit. Now, just to put a bit of background, of course, um, most of us have to pay or, or do pay private health insurance. There's a, there are financial incentives uh, based around the you know, Medibank payments and things that encourage people to do that. There are some penalties if you don't. So most of us do have uh, health insurance with one of the big companies. And the biggest in Australia is Medibank Private. And it uh, became, it was sold by the government last year. Uh, was it this, last year or this year? I think earlier this year, maybe. For about... Uh, Five and a half billion dollars, um, and uh, now it's a private organisation with primary responsibility to its shareholders, like any other any other company. And uh, for people who uh, aren't aware, what happens is, you know, you go into hospital if you've got health insurance, and you um, there's a, a percentage of your, of your inpatient care will be covered by the insurers, your insurers. And uh, as it actually happens, a very small percentage of the population of Australia who have a lot of chronic illnesses are responsible for a big a big section of what gets paid out by the uh, insurers. Now, uh, when um, the privatisation happened, the head of uh, the head of uh, uh, Medibank made a comment that he was uh, it would enable this new private insuring group to show its muscle, flex its muscle with the big hospital groups. The private hospitals in Australia are generally grouped in other in hospital-based corporations. There's things like HealthScope and Ramsey Health, and they're all over. They've got a lot of hospitals all over the country, so they've got um, a, they've got a big group, very you know wealthy group of hospitals who then have to negotiate with these big wealthy group of insurers how much they'll pay, how much they'll be covered, and the rest gets paid by the patient for the most part. 
Now, uh, recently, Medibank, since it's been privatised and uh, in an order, uh, well, they claim to improve quality, others have argued it's to decrease cost, uh, have said we're going to bring in some new standards around our negotiation. And it's begun with a small hospital group called the Cal- Calgary Group. Calgary or Calgary? I've just lost my thought. Calgary, I think it is, in, which is a big hospital group um, which, co- which has hospitals mainly in... Uh, the ACT, South Australia and Tasmania. Now, it's one of the smaller hospital groups around Australia, but it's got a heavy presence in those areas. And uh, at the moment, the uh, Medibank Private is uh, locked in negotiation with this group of hospitals around what their, you know, their contract is going to be over the next so many years. And they've been fighting and breaking down and negotiating about it. And next week, I understand that they're going in front of the insurance ombudsman to try and come some, broker some sort of agreement. And the issue at stake uh, seems to be that Medibank Private has now said there are 165 um, preventable adverse events, and I'm quoting them, which they will no longer fund. And the argument is uh, whether this is fair or not and whether this is realistic or not. Now, the uh, the spokesman for Medibank Private, who's actually a, a practising psychiatrist, Dr Andrew Wilson, he's been on TV doing a lot of, and radio doing a lot of um, talks about this. He's He's been part of the rolling out. His argument is that um, this is to improve quality because of the, the 165 adverse events. If, if you suppose that these are all preventable with good hospital care, then they shouldn't happen with, with good hospital care and that if they do happen, hospital care hasn't been good. So why should the insurers pay? Now, uh, on uh, last week at the National Press Club uh, address, Professor Brian Aller, who's the head of the AMA, got up and did a talk about the state of play in medicine in Australia, and he spent some time talking about this issue. And there's a number of areas where there's, it's really ringing bells and worries for a lot of people, and certainly has rung a few for me. And one of the things that Dr. Uh, Professor Aller said was that um, he, can, he could see amongst this list there were some things that seemed reasonable that you wouldn't pay for. For example, amputating the wrong limb or leaving a scalpel inside a body, uh, somebody when you're, when you're operating on them. So, uh, and uh, you know, you could argue that perhaps this is a clear-cut thing that the <coughs> hospital you know, processes would, you know, say, we, we, can, we, can, we should be able to prevent these, absolutely. So he didn't have a problem with that sort of thing, but there are a number of other things which I think anybody in medicine, well certainly when I read the list, would think hang on a minute, we're not completely in control that you can't obli- eliminate these altogether and there's very big questions hanging over them. Now the list includes things like um, amputating on the wrong limb, um, it also includes things like death in childbirth which they've since uh, argued about a little bit, I'll explain a bit more uh, things like infections, like urinary tract infections around catheter sites um, uh, falls uh, fractured hips from falls in hospitals uh, things like tw- uh, 28 days readmission, unplanned readmissions and inpatient suicide which is where my uh, flag went up inpatient suicides. Now I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of, of this because the, uh, to me there's the argument around this is, is whether people should be held responsible for things they can't control and this is a, a constant theme that I think we've talked about on this show many times about um, you know coronial quest, uh, inquests about deaths and uh, other, other forums. So how much 
much control does a hospital have? Let's let's take the issue of a 28-day readmission first of all. Uh, Medibank saying they won't pay uh, for somebody to come back the second time if they've got an unplanned readmission. Now put yourself in the in the position of somebody who's been in hospital, is recovering from something. Is, of course, they're all voluntary patients in the private healthcare, you know, private health, hospital system. They're all voluntary adults making informed decisions. And you're you're the doctor, and you say, well, you know, it might be almost time for you to go home, John. Or what do you think? And he said, oh, I don't want to go home next week. I actually want to go home today, right today, because my daughter's birthday is tomorrow. I want to be there. Well, I'm not sure, John, whether you should. Your wounds still got a little way to go. No, I want to go. Um, so in in this situation, there's obviously people, and that's just one example. But the patients are obviously exerting a lot of agency around these decisions. And the, the insurers, as I, as I read it, are saying, well, if that person goes home and then um, there's a wound infection uh, or some other problem and they end up coming back to hospital, they won't pay for that person's second, in, second admission costs. Now, you can argue pro and con about that, but it seems to me there's a huge area of problem here because if that starts to happen, well, A, they may, I mean, obviously Medibank may risk losing people who are signing up to their, um, to their uh, insurance, but if it goes across the whole uh, insurance sector, then there won't be any choice to make. They'll all do, they'll all do the same thing. This will be seen as a, 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 land, a landmark case, you know, so that you may not be able to change what you're doing. But the other thing is, it's going to, I think, have a lot of upstream problems. For example, it might stretch out admissions. If, if you know that you're not going to, you know, you can't come back next week for your second round of something, or if something goes wrong, you can't come back in, you might say, well, I'm going to stay longer. And the hospitals will be 100% happy about that, because their beds are full and they're not going to be facing the possibility of a... So it's, Actually, the, a lot the of hospitals won't because uh, as far as I'm aware with the private health insurance system, uh, beyond a certain length of stay, the money that the insurer pays the hospital drops. So the insurers pressure... <coughs> sorry, the hospitals pressure patients to get out within that step-down period before their rebate drops. But they, they may not as much if they know that if they come back, they can't, they can't, they won't be getting any funding for it. That could that could change the dynamics around that, I think. So they'll run it up to the limit, yes, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there's a few problems there that could be could affect access to the beds and it could affect, um, you know, the way medicine is practised. Yeah, mm. When you listen to, to Wilson talk when he's def- defending this, uh, he sounds very sensible and pragmatic, sounds like a reasonable man. Uh, but the, the issue, as I see it, is the, the cracks in the system. There are going to be so many people who fall through the cracks here. This is attempting to put a square peg in a round hole. We know how much interaction goes on, human interaction goes on in relation to issues of discharge planning. We know how gravity affects human beings and people do fall over, not through necessarily through any negligence, it just misadventure. These things happen. People get out of bed at night, people crawl over railings, all of these things. And what what they're uh, what they seem to be doing is introducing um, basically a demarcation dispute. We're not going to be responsible for this. You're going to be responsible for this. And so there's this battle. I'm wondering how much of this is an ambit claim from the biggest insurer now and how much the hospitals are being put on notice What's what's going to happen? How strident are the hospitals, the private hospital organizations going to be in terms of resisting what is a push now from the, the insurers? My concern, and I think the concern of most of us is, 
that this is a fight between insurer versus private hospital groups, and the ones who will suffer inevitably are going to be the poor patients because they don't necessarily have the the representation. And one of the critical issues here is that Medibank Prime, Medibank now is owned. It's in the super fund. It's in the, in the mother and father shareholders. You know, we're all participants in this uh, in this process. Absolutely, I think that's what the big big worry. And the other thing that Professor Aller alluded to to the other risk, and I think this is something to be very. Uh, this could be the beginning of a of a change that's very detrimental. I mean, if you think of this of the uh, insurers saying now we are not going to pay for this event. How, and that gets passed. Then next, the next thing is we are not going to uh, pay unless you do practice medicine in this way. The absolute Americanization. And of then our the system. next thing after that is we are only going to fund things mm. if, we, if you practice medicine. And that, that then we're in managed care. Yeah. Which, you know. yeah. I was interested by the inclusion of suicide on the list. Yes. Do they mean attempted suicide or a completed suicide attempt in hospital? I don't see why a completed suicide attempt would be an issue because the requirement for ongoing cover presumably ceases at that point. But are they saying that if somebody tries to kill themselves in hospital, that's a, a preventable event that they won't then cover the ongoing costs for? Well, in the list that they've published, that just says inpatient suicide. I don't, I, I don't think they refer to uh, attempt, and whether they would not pay for the, the, the days in hospital leading up to that event, I don't know. You're right. It sounds very strange, doesn't it? Hmm. But uh, we all, I'm, we, you know, there's three psychiatrists in the room. I know I've seen inpatient suicides where I'm absolutely certain the person got themselves admitted to a private hospital in order to kill themselves in hospital. I've seen that happen, and I've seen people People write notes to that effect because they they want to be found by doctors and nurses, not family. I know that happens, and and also we know that people can give fantastic care, and people will still find a way, unfortunately, to make that decision to end their life, no matter the best care in the world. I've seen I have seen a person in a seclusion room with a nurse sitting beside their bed overnight commit suicide by stuffing the filling out of their pillow into their mouth without showing any sign of it was happening I've, I've, you know it is absolutely impossible to say we have can exert complete control over people's decision making in hospital on and, any and issue and especially suicide yeah, all of us as clinicians would know that there are patients who we have encountered and we know that no matter what we do they are going to end up killing themselves by hook or by crook because they are so determined and uh, and so we don't have the amount of agency that we might think we do have three triple You've got 15 more minutes of silky radio here, and uh, and it gets uh, really silky now. It's with really silky, and uh, <laughs> imitation game. I, I I thought that was such a wonderful film. Tell us your take, SK. Yes, I'm, I'm perhaps imitation silk. I'm more polyester, I think. But uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the film. I, I wasn't aware of uh, the backstory behind this film prior to watching it, and uh, it was somewhat of a revelation to me, just in terms of the sort of behind-the-scenes work that was going on in UK facilities during World War II to, uh, to break the Nazi codes. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, I thought, was brilliant in the lead role. Uh, Kira Knightley played his putative sort of half-love interest, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the character was gay, but uh, uh, it was a very engaging film, which gave a great insight into to the man and his work. It, it 
basically explained events around the life of the protagonist, uh, Alan Turing, who's sort of best known in historical terms for two things. I mean, the first is his development of something called the Turing test, which is still referred to as a test of artificial intelligence. Basically, Turing posited that... uh, you could have a dialogue with a machine and if a blinded assessor couldn't tell that they were having a dialogue with a machine and that machine could pass as human and that is your true test of an artificial intelligence. It's actually a concept that was uh, raised in another film this year called Ex Machina uh, where the Turing test was the turning point of the plot. So that's uh, got an eponymous name now devoted to artificial intelligence uh, in his name. Uh, Turing is also known as the father of modern, modern computing in many ways. Uh, his work in World War II around designing a machine that could break the Nazi codes really laid the foundations for much of what has followed in terms of developments in, in both personal and mainframe computing. So he was a pioneer in, in many, many ways and uh, was, was recognised you know, many years after his unfortunate death by the, the British government and others for his contributions to that field. Uh, he was a controversial figure. Uh, he was uh, a, a gay man and he was convicted for uh, indecency in 1952 in the UK at a time when homosexuality was still illegal and uh, part of his sentence for having been convicted on that charge was to undergo uh, chemical castration by being treated with female hormones for a period of time. And uh, he died in somewhat controversial circumstances in 1954. Uh, A coroner's inquest found that it was death by suicide from cyanide poisoning. But there's uh, been a lot of controversy around whether it was was truly a suicide or whether it was a a death by misadventure because Turing was known to be experimenting with cyanide in his lab at the time. So a controversial but uh, historical figure of truly historical dimensions, he contributed a lot. Having said that, the film did take a lot of uh, liberties with the truth. It sort of implies, if you watch the the imitation game, that somehow he single-handedly invented this code-breaking machine and took himself apart from the group of researchers who were dogmatically following other lines of inquiry and Turing himself took a lone hand in building his machine. Uh, In fact, that wasn't the case at all. It was very much a a collaborative effort and attempts to make some form of code-breaking machine that had been going on for many years even before Turing joined the uh, the project. Uh, if you watch the film, it implies that there was perhaps a group of four or five people who were the, the core part of this code-breaking endeavour. In fact, Bletchley Park, the facility that uh, cracked the codes during World War II, had several thousand code-breakers employed at any one time. Uh, so it, it sort of amplifies his role beyond that which could perhaps be justified by the evidence. The film also implies, though, and this is probably my major issue with it, because it flies against a lot of the history historical evidence that we have in relation to the man himself, but it implies that he had an, an, a personality that was abnormal to the extent that, uh, you know, it suggests that he had Asperger's syndrome. Uh, and it's not the, f- the film wasn't the first to do this. I mean, there's a num- been a number of books published that have attempted to posthumously diagnose a variety of historical figures. There was one published by a guy called Ian James, a mathematician in 2005. He sort of took 20 great uh, Englishmen and Englishwomen and uh, posited that they might have had uh, Asperger's and Turing was mentioned as one of those alongside uh, you know, Sir Isaac Newton and a number of others. <laughs> 
uh, but really extrapolating beyond the uh, the available facts. The film shows Turing very much as what you'd think of as a, as a high-functioning Asperger's uh, person. Uh, it illustrates that he doesn't understand jokes. You know, people make jokes with him and he stares blankly at them. Uh, there's one sequence in the film where he has to stiltedly tell a joke because he's been told by his friend that he has to endear himself to members of his team so he mechanically reels off a rather bad joke with no nuance and subtlety to it uh he's a very concrete man as portrayed in the film he doesn't understand figures of speech and he takes common expressions or things that we just say in in passing as being very literally interpreted Uh, he's indifferent to the emotions of others his interpersonal style is very blunt and forthright and uh, doesn't take into account the fact that he might be causing offence or has to operate within uh, a, a social system in order to get his point across Uh, He's shown as having a number of obsessive-compulsive traits as well as some flashback sequences to his early life at school where he's in the the mess hall of his boarding school and he's obsessively separating the peas from the carrots because they're not allowed to touch, you know, those sort of things, none of which were really uh, drawn from uh, any sense of reality. The, the film claims to be uh, based on a biography of Turing that was written some years previously, and if you look at this biography, it does certainly describe him as an eccentric and, and odd man in many ways. Uh, there's a story about him riding his, uh, his bicycle, and his bicycle had a dodgy chain that kept falling off, and instead of, you know, as many of us would do, going to get the bicycle chain fixed, Turing's technique was to obsessively count the number of revolutions that he made when he was pedalling to work, and he calculated the point at which the chain would reliably fail. He'd stop several hundred revolutions short of this point on his journey and readjust the chain to keep it operative, you know, those sort of things. And was was quite shy as well, but was described by his colleagues in this biography as, and I'll quote here, and a, a very approachable man who we were very, very fond of. And, you know, that sort of warmth that he generated amongst his colleagues doesn't really fit with the odd, aloof, uh, eccentric and dismissive character that he's portrayed as uh, as in the film. So it really does him a disservice historically, because you know many people won't have read the uh, the biography, of course, and many more people will see the film than ever have the opportunity to read the book, and you tend to draw your conclusions based on on what is shown. The film also uh, paint, takes some liberties in his relationship with the Kira Knightley character. Uh, he does actually propose marriage to the Kira Knightley character at one stage, and this actually did happen in relation to the character that she was portraying. Uh, the nature of their relationship was somewhat overblown, though, and, and certainly Kira Knightley looks absolutely nothing like the woman in real life upon whom her, her character was based, who was, who was rather plain. It also does take some liberties with how she was recruited to the code-breaking group uh, in the film Turing uh, concocts uh, Uh, a test whereby people had to complete a crossword within a certain period of time and in the film it's revealed that this is how he recruited Kira Knightley to the code breakers that didn't happen at all you know she was referred to him and to his group by a third party organization for whom she'd already shown great promise and skill for example so this historical liberties what exactly then is Asperger's syndrome 
in, in many ways it's a bit of a redundant question because uh, since the advent of DSM-5, the latest mm. incarnation of the psychiatric uh, diagnostic cookbook, Asperger's no longer exists as a diagnosis. It's been removed from the nomenclature and it's been subsumed under a broader uh, spectrum of developmental disorders encompassed by autistic spectrum conditions. So those who are autistic and, and lie at the Asperger's end of the spectrum uh, are known to have problems with social interaction. They don't get social nuance well. They don't respond to nonverbal cues such as body language or facial expressions or indications that somebody might be bored with your long-winded explanation, much as the expression you're giving me now makes it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't do social interaction well. They tend to, to demonstrate intense interest in peripheral matters, usually scientific in nature. Uh, for example, you know, memorising the names of stars, but focusing on that task to the exclusion of a broader interest in astronomy, for example. You know, their sole interest is in memorising the names of stars, and they find this fascinating and can engage people in lengthy discussions about their interest in it, which really, unless you've got a, a, a similarly narrow range of, of focus, most people find pretty boring. Asperger's syndrome was named after an Austrian paediatrician called Hans Asperger who in, in 1944 observed patients from within his own practice who he described as being uh, little professors uh, in that they, you know, they demonstrated in a, in a preschool or a primary school level of functioning the sort of uh, behaviours that we'd associate with uh, academic, abstract, intelligent people. They had an extremely narrow focus of interest they struggled interpersonally, uh, they were physically clumsy as well, which again sort of flies, argues against Alan Turing being uh, an Asperger's sufferer. Uh, it's shown briefly in the film that he, was, he uses running as a recreation. He was in fact you know, a world-class uh, marathon runner. And in the post-war years, he tried out for the, the 1948 uh, English marathon uh, squad for the, for the Olympics, but suffered an injury and was unable to compete. But he did sort of beat in preliminary trials uh, uh, another Englishman who went on to claim the bronze in the, the marathon in the London Olympics. So uh, mm. he certainly wasn't a physically inept guy. He was, he was very, very fit and quite talented in, in that respect. Uh, the other sort of aspect of, of Asperger's patients that uh, were noted by Professor Asperger was that they, they tend to have a, a variety of repetitive physical mannerisms like hand flapping and arm movements and so forth that are characteristic of those on the autism spectrum. And uh, there was no sense from the film that, uh, that Turing demonstrated any of those abnormalities either. So, you know, this is a case where you know, perhaps a popular perception of how a figure might be can be skewed by how the character is chosen to be portrayed and the emphasis that a director might wish to take a film for the, for the sake of artistic licence rather than historical accuracy. Uh, certainly anybody viewing this as a casual observer would think that Turing was this lonely, isolative genius who worked alone and didn't play well with others. Historical record would... Uh, claimed to uh, to display the opposite, that he was in, in many ways quite a warm man and worked very collaboratively, collaboratively with his colleagues. Um, the fact that he was uh, charged, though, for the uh, indecency, uh, ch with the indecency charges does point to the awful uh, um, 
subterranean life that people who were gay in those times had to live in many ways, had to keep things to themselves and private and their, and their careers were threatened if it became public and that aspect of, I think was probably highlighted in the film too that was very, a very sad, I thought it was a very sad aspect of his life and if it was in fact suicide I guess points to the fact that for some people in our society that, uh, that uh, sadness and isolation goes on It did highlight to me the film the, the discrepancy between public and private uh, perceptions towards that behaviour at the time was again going back to the biography of Turing, you know uh, the film would have it that he kept his homosexuality a secret and uh, didn't uh, and you know, his disclosure of his homosexuality was used as a, as a lever by a Russian spy to prevent his disclosure as a spy but going back to the autobiography it's sort of pretty clear that uh, Turing throughout his time at Bletchley Park was known to have made a number of quite open sexual advances towards other men who worked alongside of him you know, these advances were by and large rejected but it was uh, sort of an open secret at Bletchley Park that uh, Turing was homosexual and there was a tolerance and an acceptance of that but the the public mindset at the time and certainly as the way the the laws were laid down were were very anti it and very discriminative and and it was implied that uh, you know the tensions around his homosexuality and chemical castration were a factor in his ultimate uh, query suicide and that's uh, Hollywood making the most of, uh, of a story. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. We hope that you've enjoyed uh, Radiotherapy today. We've had uh, a fascinating discussion with John Safran. We've heard about uh, Medibank and, uh, and the imitation game. And we'll be back next week, uh, again, bigger and better. And uh, uh, please stay tuned for the scientists. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.